All right, good evening, everybody. Welcome to this uh, this month's Then Conversations, and it's a big uh, honor for us to be hosting once again Rabbi, Rabbi Siegel, who is uh, not an unfamiliar face to our community, having at least visited this once a year in the time that I've been in Sanat, um, and very much uh, a great a great charismatic speaker, has spoken within our community on a number of occasions, and a mentor to so many within the community. So it's a big honor to have him here, albeit on a slightly different uh, track to what he's uh, ordinarily uh, accustomed to. But um, really, uh, Rabbi Siegel, when I, when I you know, made contact with him earlier, when it was towards the end of late last year, and I said, this is what we're doing in our community. We are trying to expose our community to different groups from both within and beyond the Jewish community and try to hear their perspectives and what's in their lives and try to open up their world to us. Um, since it was a WhatsApp conversation, I can't say whether you did or didn't hesitate, but it didn't seem like there was any hesitation on his part. So um, thank you, Rabbi Siegel, to, uh, for agreeing to be here this evening and uh, be part of our conversation. For those who are, who are not familiar with this, uh, this format, um, the, the title of this whole series has been Them. And the idea is that these are groups, we want to meet groups of people who ordinarily we don't have day-to-day um, -day interaction with or know very much about their world. But even though we might be quite ignorant of the world, we all have very, very firm positions and uh, feelings about their world. And I think in the proliferation of the, the Netflix series, Stissel um, has opened up to many, I see the heads here, so, has opened up the Haredi world to many um, in a positive way where before virtually every uh, cinematic portrayal of the Haredi community has been very negative. And the purpose of this evening is just to touch upon a couple of the very topical issues that have been um, very topical issues in Israel in particular, but to a certain degree in the diaspora as well. And, um, and just to try and see you know, what's, hap what's happening and understand the logic and the perspective from the Haredi community therein. So, Rabbi Siegel, welcome. So perhaps just uh, by way of introduction, if you could first and foremost just give us a little bit about your background, where you come from and where you're at, and then perhaps, just so that we're all on the same page, define what the word Haredi means in your world. Great. So first of all, thanks for the opportunity. Um, actually didn't hesitate when, when I got the op option from Baba Krebs to come here and say, you know, discuss these ideas because I have a deep respect and love of the community and every experience I've had here has been so open and engaging. And I thought, well, this is, this is going to be a challenge because it's definitely a different platform to the one I'm normally at. As you can see, I came in full battle gear, um, <laughs> presenting very well. Um, so I was very excited by the opportunity. And actually what happened is as follows. Since the initial conversation we had over WhatsApp, it actually got me thinking and I sort of think, well, let me look at this world that I've grown up in in a certain way and think how it expresses to, to an audience that doesn't have that same kind of exposure. So maybe I will begin with a bit of background. Um, I've actually brought a specimen from my past, Salman, a good friend in the background. So he actually, we grew up together um, in, in a traditional South African background, um, King David school, and I think I had a more of a a bent towards religion, using the word bent quite loosely, and 
but I never was really exposed to any kind of um, real Torah education until I entered into university. And what happened was when I was in second year university, pursuing perhaps, perhaps what many parents were happy. You know, most parents, when their children take a course away from their university degrees and decide to spend time in Shiva, it creates a lot of anxiety. Like, what's going to happen with their with their livelihood? But thankfully, I was doing a degree in, in fine arts, and my parents were relieved that now I'd be doing something more productive with my time. <laughs> so, so, so what happens is that I kind of, I get more and more inspired about, about Judaism, which is its own story, how it happened and, and why it happened. And I decided, to, okay, I have to go to Israel, I have to learn, I have to pursue this. And I land up in, in Jerusalem, in a shiva called Or Samach, and um, I land with this massive bag, because I've never actually been exposed to any of this before in my life. South Africa was a relatively um, generic community with a very little diversity. For example, there was no Hasidim. There was no real Haredi presence in the classical sense of the word. And therefore it was, it was bewildering to me. I didn't really know where to put myself. And that, especially, I was 20 and I had about the emotional age of 17, um, which over the last decade or two has like gone up a couple of years, only a couple. And um, so it was very difficult for me. I just didn't really have mechanisms of, of processing this, and it's been an ongoing process. So as a result, I be, that was when, that was 30 years ago. Um, so 30 years ago I landed in Israel, and I've lived there ever since. And I've lived essentially, even though perhaps you could argue that the first months, and perhaps a couple of years, a bit of my experience in, in Israel was not officially Haredi, because Orsamah is the easy yeshiva which is pretty much open agenda and this is there to teach Torah, but still I gravitated towards the Haredi direction and after just over, uh, just under two years in Orsamah, I went to a, the heart of a Haredi neighborhood neighbor called Matasdorf, um, not quite Shtiseldik, but um, pretty close. And I was in Yeshiva, which was known as Lakewood East, and I spent a couple of years there, and then I went on to a Yeshiva called the Mir Yeshiva, and spent a few more years there, and then 20 years ago I began teaching. So I've been pretty much involved in the Haredi world. Uh, we got married uh, 27 years ago, and I know, it's been fun. And um, since then we've lived in, a, in the heart of an in Israeli Haredi neighborhood called Ramad Dalet, which means the entire population of the neighborhood, um, I'm not quite sure about the numbers, but it's a few thousand, is, it's, it's, very, it's a very kind of monolithic group. And when I say the word monolithic, it's, it's quite literal, um, only two kinds. And um, so, <laughs> so I've been living there for the last 27 years. So what I'd like to perhaps share with you today is, you know, in terms of the, the currents in the Haredi world and the facts and figures, um, I can't say that I'm afraid with those. My intention over here is to give you perhaps an insider's view of, well, how does it feel when I, or my neighbors are Haredim? How do those interactions work? How, what happens when you go to Shul? What does it feel like on Pesach? What about, what are people saying about when their kid does or doesn't go to the army? Um, how do people feel on your Matzmot? And instead of approaching it from the macro, I'll have to approach it from the micro, which is a more personal and not necessarily reflective, but hopefully it will be valuable for you to get insight. And if this doesn't work, please come visit me in Israel and have the live tour. <laughs> so perhaps you could, in your own words, 
describe what the word Haredi. When you say, I'm Haredi, what, what do you mean by that? Because just despite, within the Haredi world, can, you've got everything from, let's say, the, the, the very harsh Satma, anti-Israel, anti-Zionist in every sense of the word, to the more, let's call it the Haredi Lumi, which is, on a surface level, would look Haredi, but they're very Zionistic in certain aspects of their look. And then you would have, uh, I suppose, the vast majority, which is this, let's call it a Zionistic Haredi, which is supportive, so to speak, of the state and the concept of the state, but not necessarily um, actively contributing on things like the army or Shubat Lumi and the like. So since that whole spectrum would fall into the under the umbrella of the Haredi world in some form or another, and I don't want people to have an assumption that, oh, you're Haredi, therefore you must be anti-Zionist and you, you burn the Israeli flag. Uh, so just so you could, so we could, to some degree, get an appreciation of where you see yourself in that world. Okay, that, that's a great question. So actually the frame, I don't know if any of you know, there's a group of Christians called the Quakers. Mm. So actually, they, they're, they're the Haredim of the Christian world. Um, not that I know what they subscribe to, but the actual word Haredi means Quaker. So there you go, first new thing you learn tonight. Next time you eat those oats, remember, those are Haredi oats. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the word Haredi comes from Quaker. It's actually derived from a pasuk in Isaiah. Um, and the pasuk is two pasukim in Isaiah, but one of them is Haredi Malthar Hashem, which means those that tremble um, for the word of Hashem. And it connotes a sense of awe, reverence for, for divinity. Um, in other words, Haredi, the term, has a certain connotation of people that take this whole thing called Torah exceptionally seriously. Now, within that general umbrella terminology, as Rabbi Krebs pointed out, there is a massive diversity. Um, if, we, if we can, I mean, he started from a scale of anti-Zionist to pro-Zionist, but there's actually many ways you could categorize him. Um, you could categorize him in terms of approaches to working and learning, which actually, to a large degree, will split. Let me maybe begin by making three fundamental distinctions within the Haredi world, which I think are larger categories, and then obviously there'll be subcategories and more subcategories. The, the three major distinctions in the Haredi world are the Hasidim, um, what we refer to as the Lithuanian Yeshiva Jews, or Litvisha, or Litaim, and the Sephardim. Now, all of those groups will traditionally, in terms of if you want to identify them by dress, they all definitely wear the, the penguin suit, but the, the sizes differ. Um, not, not, not the people's body sizes. <laughs> the, the, those obviously differ. The sizes of the length of the clothes, etc. Um, so fundamentally, we've got the Hasidim, the Litvaks, and the, the Svaradim. Now, there is immense difference in terms of, for example, let's talk about the attitude towards going into the workforce. So in the Hasidic world, um, there is no really notion of person spending extended amount of years after they're married in a quality type situation. And the Hasidic groups encourage their followers to go out work. Oh, sorry. So, so maybe to give you a bit of a, a background in terms of the differentiation between yeshiva and quality. Yeshiva is an is a institution, uh, academy of Talmudic study. The primary focus is on the study of Talmud. Um, and Talmud being a, a very complex um, exploration of the fundamentals of Jewish law and all its aspects and, and permutations. 
And that specifically refers to unmarried students. When a student gets married, so then he graduates what's called a kolal. A kolal is sometimes a similar kind of curriculum, but specifically suited for married students in as much as the daily schedule will look different. The daily schedule of Yeshiva essentially has got three components to it, which I suppose is an interesting insight in terms of the study culture in the Haredi world. Um, as opposed to a university or school, the, the Yeshiva system has, is divided up into three parts. The morning, the afternoon, and the night. Which means from, you know, you started with Dublin, it's approximately 7.30. Um, the morning, what's called the morning Seder, the morning schedule starts at 9, approximately between 9.15 and 9.30, and stretches until 1.15. There's Mincha. There's a big break for about, from 1.30 for lunch and recreation until 3.30. It then goes from 3.30 till 7. A break for supper and marriage, and then from 8.30 till 10.30, 11, 12, depending on the person's diligence. So it's a pretty, it's a pretty well-encompassing day. That's for unmarried students, where they can sustain that schedule. Um, for married students, the schedule shifts. Um, they have a family and, um, you know, a wife and family to take care of. So therefore, their primary learning period is only during the day. They learn only two of the three um, sedaya. Now, um, that kind of process of learning yeshiva, get married, and then stay in kolel for an extended period of time, which means that the kolel will actually pay your stipend. It's not a lot of money, um, but if the husband goes into the kolel and, um, and the wife is also getting, she's also employed and she's getting some kind of remuneration from her job, so then it's enough to, to kind of stretch out those years of learning uh, depending on the nature of the frugal circumstances of the couple's living to an extended amount of years. Uh, within the Lithuanian com community, there is a high value placed on doing that for as pretty much as long as you can. In the Hasidic community, the attitude is, you learned in Yeshiva, you're married now, um, maybe you'll spend a year or two afterwards because take into consideration that the age of marriage within the Haredi world for girls is a little bit younger than, than, than boys, but the average marriage, marriage age is between, for girls, let's say 18 to 22, and for boys, probably 20 to 24. Obviously, there are people who get married before and after, but that's the kind of the, 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 major, the major focus. So, people are quite young when they get married, especially the Hasidim tend to get married a little bit younger. So, they'll spend a couple of years in Kodala kind of brushing up and building a foundation to their learning, and then they'll be merged into the workforce. Um, in the Sephardi world, it's, it's, it's much, much more complex because they came from a very different place. So both the Lita'im and the Hasidim essentially both came from Eastern Europe and their, their sources and their, their traditions follow that kind of um, spirit. The Sephardim came from a very different place and they came almost they came in late into the game because they were entered into Israel when a lot of the a lot of the yeshivot were pre-established. So they actually took on the dress. So even though Sephardim back in Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, were not walking around in in black suits and hats. Once they came to Israel and they began to subscribe to the Haredi life, they also put on the garb. So they also dressed the same way. But internally, the customs are vastly different, and then there's actually a lot of diversity in terms of the attitude towards working and learning. And it's, it's much harder to categorize as opposed to the Hasidic and the, the Litvic world.
Is that... Uh, so where do you see yourself? Uh, where am I? <laughs> it's a question I ask myself. Um, you know, sometimes I say, hey man, I'm just like a chiller. But I don't think that's going to help for tonight. Um, where I see myself is I would associate with the Lithuanian Yeshiva world. Um, that's the kind of institutions that my, my children have gone to school in. Uh, my grandchildren are presently in school in. And I suppose that's a place where I would be, you know, I'm, I'm not, a, I, I actually have a problem identifying with the large communities. But if I would put myself in some situation, some place, that's probably where I would, I would place myself. So, I suppose the two big questions that um, I'd like to focus on this evening is one regarding the, the State of Israel and uh, the, the approach from yourself and your world to not only the concept of the State of Israel um, in general as a, as a secular Israeli state, Jewish state, um, but one's contribution. So one of the biggest uh, attacks and the biggest criticisms of the Haredi communities non-service within the army. Um, I think on, on, on the one level is non-service in the army, second level is non-service in any national, um, you know, structured service, any form of national service. And I'll take it a step further, a feeling by many within the army that it's not only that they're not served, but they look down upon because they serve in the army. And so perhaps, um, you know, just if, if uh, someone to come to you and say, you, you don't serve in the army, you live in this country, you benefit from the security of the country, you, the safety that you can study in yeshiva and you can raise your kids in this country and use all the benefits of the country, but yet you don't contribute to it. So how, how, does, how does that sit with you and how would you respond to that? Okay, so that, that's a great question. I think that's probably one of the sorest and most core issues. And I mean, I completely understand, understand it, you know, because it's an issue which touches both on national security, but it's even more poignant and painful because people lose their lives. So there's, it's, a very, it's a very emotionally charged issue. Hello? Oh, snaky. Um, so so when, you, when, you, when you think about... That this is kind of something which really kind of, in a, in a very sad way for me personally, rips the country apart in terms of the relationship between Haredim and, and let's say the secular, secular world. And the problem is it's very hard to see a reconciliation um, because there's obviously a fundamental approach to values. Now, first of all, I want you to distinguish between serving in the army and appreciating the army. Um, I think it's hard to say what, what the masses feel, but personally and from certainly my teachers, um, not serving the army doesn't mean an appreciation of the army. Actually, the Yeshiva that I studied in, the, the Mir Shiva, the previous Rosh Hashiva, the Pachayim Shmulevitz, he was, he would like, accuse a person of, of being um, not worthy of study if you don't have appreciation for the soldiers. And I think that would be um, unaware and ungrateful to, to, to acknowledge the fact that these people are literally giving up their lives, and at the very least, giving up three of the most precious years of their life to ensure that you're protected, and I think it requires a person who's extremely numb and unaware to, to not be appreciative of that. Um, as an example, an anecdote, and I think it does reinforce this idea, during the Tsuk Eitan, the recent war in Gaza, 
there was a project amongst, I mean, our entire family and all their friends and everyone, pretty much everyone in our community participated, is that every person in the community was assigned the name of a soldier. And they said, those guys are fighting, use and you pray. And most of the people in our community, as far as I know, in my, in my circle for sure, all of my children, they had the name of the soldier that they would pray, they would learn in their marriage. So there's a sense of, there is a sense, you know, at least ideally of, of not, not kind of, oh, we're here and who cares about them. Not to say that there aren't individuals who are emotionally stinted who don't feel that way, but I definitely think definitely from the top downwards, that's the feeling of appreciation is definitely there. Um, the problem is there's, there's a core value difference. And the core value difference is that the Haredi world perceives itself as, yes, contributing to, to the advancement of the society, Jewish people as a whole. And this is where I think it gets very complicated. Because the, you know, if you, if you, if you, where do you place the value of Torah study? Where does it rank in the hierarchy of importance? So within the Haredi world, I think that's probably one of the most differentiating points of it. It takes the notion of Torah study and its fundamental contribution to the existence and the continued existence of the Jewish people, and in a hierarchy of values, it puts it really right, right, right there at the top. In other words, is there anything you could, the question would be asked, is there anything that could be done better then the study of Torah, the answer would be, no, not really. And the Talmud even gives a graphic example of this with Mordechai, the hero of the Purim story. And Mordechai, he went into Shushan, and he should have gone into Shushan, and literally saved the entire Jewish people through his strategy from extermination. He gets back to the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, and they say, we're very sorry, Mordechai, but you've been demoted. Um, because during the time that you were saving the Jewish people, you actually weren't occupied in the study of Torah, and as a result, your spiritual level has somewhat dropped. Now, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't have saved the, the Jewish people, obviously not, but it does mean that in what the impact that it has on the individual and the nation from this perspective is immeasurable. So, once you perceive that the study of Torah is contributing, first of all, if you have the faith, from a spiritual perspective, that this is the stuff which is injecting the Jewish people with energy. This is kind of the, the heart that's getting the blood to course through the veins of the Jewish people as a whole. So then you'd ask a Haredi Shiva why don't you contribute to the state? His answer will be, what do you mean? I'm actually doing the ultimate contribution. I'm guaranteeing the future survival of the Jewish people, granted, not on a physical level, but on a spiritual level. Um, I mean, I once thought, and this is kind of a radical way of thinking, but I once thought, what, what would happen if, you know, the entire Israel would become Haredi, which demographically, I mean, fortunately, unfortunately, depending on the position you hold, is, is not a distant reality. I think by the, by the year 2065, there's, a, there's presently a million Haredi in Israel, which is an enormous amount. Um, it's approximately between 1 and 7 and 1 and 8. And the average birth rate is 8 children per family. So you, know, you can never anticipate what's going to happen in the future, but based on the current statistics, so there's going to be, there will eventually be a majority, you know, if nothing changes and you never know, there will be a majority of Haredim in, in Israel, um, which imagine like Shtisel on steroids. <laughs> so you've got... Um, 
That's, that's a real thing. But just theoretically, so let's say theoretically there would be a, a Jewish state with no Jewish army. So predictably the, the state would be invaded and overrun and the Jews would be forced into another exile. Um, and it happened before, it happened before twice. And they'd be flung into a diaspora. And if they stuck to the study of Torah, so just like there's been a Jewish people for the last 2,000 years, there'll be a Jewish people in 2,000 years' time. On the other hand, let's imagine if every single person who was studying Torah was just like the opposite scenario. And everyone stopped studying Torah, and now there was an army, but there was no study of Torah. So then, um, predictably, the Jewish people may have a physical existence, but ultimately, the rate of assimilation, which is already astounding in the, the larger world, it's 80%, would just become maybe a national assimilation, and then the memory of Judaism would be a memory, and the state would be assimilated, and after a while, just like every other nation in the world, the Jews would cease to exist. So based on that, there's something very compelling about the, the preeminence of the study of Torah, and then we have to ask ourselves the cool question, well, does it even supersede contributing to, to serving the armed forces? And the Haredi community would ask, most certainly, because since this is contributing to the life force of the Jewish people in a significant manner, so therefore this is, this is our army. And this is the army which is going to maintain the body and the structure and soul of the Jews moving forward in the future. And therefore, a Jewish Yeshiva student between the ages of 21, let's say, will have a high obligation, the same with Prime during the Six-Day War, um, could be in the War of Independence. I think it was a war of independence. In the Meir Shiva, he said, Bokrim, if you go to sleep, you're like a person on guard duty that's left his post. As much as the soldiers are fighting day and night, you learn day and night. So I think that's, that, that's a concept which is maybe not familiar to people, and they just think it's a way of getting out of, of um, combat. I think we're going to come back to this question from a, another angle uh, a little bit later, but let's leave that because the, the second element which I think really defines an element within the Haredi world, the Haredi world in general, is the, the lack of advanced secular education. So perhaps you could just describe for us exactly you know, where within the school system their secular education goes, and once you follow that, it's just one of the I suppose one of the real concerns within the Israeli society at the moment is the rampant poverty within the Haredi community and, and the lack of opportunity for gainful employment due to that lack of education. Okay, good. So I, I think let's first of all discuss education systems and then let's discuss value in the workforce. I think both are, both are relevant and both are actually rapidly changing. The, the educational system in the Haredi world is gender divided, which means the girls have one, one way of schooling system and the boys have a completely and actually quite radically different way of schooling system. The girls' schooling system is almost a carbon copy of any um, secular schooling system, by the fact that in the girls' schooling system is obviously a large component of the day, which is devoted to what's called Limude Kodesh, or the study of um, different aspects of, of Jewish studies. Jewish studies, in other words, they would be divided between Jewish studies and secular studies. Um, there's actually within the Haredi world an incredibly strong push, as bizarre it may sound, for academic excellence amongst the girls. And, um, you know, I don't know if my family, I think my family is pretty typical. The first, our first four children are all girls. My eldest daughter is an English teacher. She's seeking to do a 
a second degree in either art therapy or um, teens at risk. My next daughter is a graphic artist who's a dress designer. My third daughter is finishing a degree in special ed, wants to go into social work. And my fourth daughter is entering into nursing. Um, now, th that means that their subjects range from biology, history, math, science, etc., as well as Tanakh, um, Chumash, uh, Musar, etc., etc., a whole range of, of, of topics. The boys' schooling system, however, is completely different. Um, there's a range in terms of, in their primary school education, how much secular studies they do. Generally, English is not studied at all in yeshivas as a rule, so their basic exposure to to study is primarily um, the secular studies that they have are maths, um, history, a little bit, and um, depending on depending on the particular primary school, there may be other subjects thrown in. Um, at the age of, in the, in the girls' schools, there's, there's like primary school education ends in the eighth grade, ninth grade is secondary education, and then um, after 12th grade, it'll be tertiary. In the boys' school, it goes pretty much from, from grade one till grade nine or eight, depending on the institution, is called Cheda, like the ultimate world, it's called Cheda. Um, and then from from approximately the age of 14 um, until you get married. So there's no actual finishing date. You're in what's called Yeshiva Kedona, which is, let's say, high, sorry, from the age of 14 till 17 in Yeshiva Kedona, from the age of 18 until you get married, you're in what's called Yeshiva Kedona. So there's like three levels. Um, once you get to the age of 14, so then for the most part, there's no longer any secular studies. And your day, like I described the day previously, is broken up into three parts. Um, for the younger boys, they generally don't go till 10.30 at night. Um, they'll be finishing at around about either 8.30 or 9.30. But essentially, they're going to be spending the entire day in the study of Talmud, with a little bit of the day spent on the study of Halakha, and, uh, which is Jewish law, and a little bit of the day which is spent on ethical development. Um, but most of the day, definitely the lion's share is engaging in um, only in Mudai Kodesh, uh, specifically the study of Gemara. Now, as a result, there's enormous amounts of, let's say, educational brain that they don't have. Um, so you can answer, well, they'll get it from their wives, but that's not so effective. Um, can cause some nice problems. So, so what do you do with this? And let's say a person wants to become gainfully employed, so now he's had, you know, fantastic education in Torah, but he's essentially incapable of even entering into a, a degree and getting a qualification, which will make him like right at the bottom of the run of the job market and may generate poverty. So what's happened now, and this is like a relatively new thing, is new meaning in the last decade, is as the Haredi population becomes more of a moving force in Israeli society as a whole, so there's huge incentives, both within the Haredi world and without, to get the Haredi population, those who are going to be going into, into who aren't going to be staying as an extended period of learning, to get to go and get a job. Now the problem is well how do you catch up um, how do you catch up a lifetime of education and get them qualified? So the truth is it's not that hard. <laughs> I went to school. 
um, didn't learn much. So what's interesting is they have these accelerated courses where in the space it's called Mechina, in the space of a year, a person focuses on the degree that he wants to do and he gets a preparation for that particular degree. So if it's a maths and science degree, so he'll get background maths and science. If it's law, so then he'll, he'll get background in, I suppose, English and legal subjects, etc., etc., etc. And as a result, now, perhaps more than ever, there are a lot of qualified Haredim entering into the workplace. I think the figures are, there are 50% of Haredim who, in the long term, go into work. Um, men, uh, I think it's 71% women. I think the Israeli average is 81% women and 90-something men. So it's definitely, you know, it's only half, uh, but I think that's even a radical change. And maybe just a bit of historical background as to how this all occurred. Because there's actually not a, a, a strong religious precedent for an entire body of, of, an entire community to spend their time learning. In fact, there's a lot of dispute if it's at all permissible to even receive funds to stay in learning. But what happened was, in the post-Holocaust era, there was a leader in Israel, known as the Chaznesh, Avraham Shai Karelis, that felt that the, the, the Torah world had been decimated by the Holocaust, and that they, were, they need, need to be rebuilt. So his, his, kind of, his policy in guiding the generation was, right now there's no luxury of whether learning is suited for you or not. There's the large body of the Jewish people are not engaged in study of Torah, they are engaged in gainful employment, so you guys have to kind of take on the banner and you have to regenerate Torah learning. So that was, I think, a very relevant point when there were a handful of yeshiva students. Um, in 2019, I don't think that stands much longer. And I think the current within the Karedi world now is very further and further, even in the staunch Lithuanian world, towards studying yeshiva, doing some kind of preparation for those people who are not geared to stay in long-term learning, which means they don't have the potential to become scholars or the secular equivalent of be entering into the academia um, and do these crossover degrees and kind of get employed. So that's one thing. Now, in terms of the poverty, I think the poverty is, is got two components to it. I think there are there are Haredi families that are poor because they don't have qualifications and therefore the breadwinner who is often the man um, just can't make enough money to support a large family. But there's actually many, it's a conscious choice. Um, that they actually, the, and I think this is important to also, I think, to appreciate that the values of the society as, at, at large are not materialistic values. So the standard of living, um, the, there's, there's no, almost no material competition. No one's trying to, certainly within the community I, that, that I've experienced in living, there's no sense of one-upmanship in terms of I have to make, um, I have to spend money that I don't have to appreciate, to impress people I don't like. There's actually, there's none of that. So it's a very non-materialistic society. So a person who has an option of being, according to the classic definition of poverty, which of course is, is subjective as what is called poverty, um, you know, I think beneath the starvation line is certainly poverty, but beyond that, um, does having, not having a car or whatever, does that define poverty? So there are certain, Families that make a deliberate choice to live on the meager income from the quail stipend and the salary that the wife may make and actually say, we'll give up the comforts of, of a higher standard of living because we actually devoted to the ideal of, of the study of Torah. 
So there are those, and I see those surrounding me, um, where it's a very kind of pure intention. And there are of course those who just would love to make more money, but they, they are unfortunately don't have the qualifications. But all that's changing, just a personal anecdote. I have a son, who um, my eldest son, who isn't, you know, really geared for, for full-time yeshiva study, and it was frustrating him. So within the Haredi system, there's now a lot of these yeshivas versioning um, where they spend the entire afternoon devoted to the, the Israeli equivalent of uh, what, what HSEs, uh, matric. So he's doing a background within the Haredi system. Um, all his teachers are Haredi, his maths teachers Haredi, his science teachers Haredi, his student history teachers Haredi, his physical education teachers Haredi, um, his life skills teachers Haredi. So there is actually, it's, it's opening up a lot. And I think that's, I think that's, that's not what it was a couple of decades ago. So, um, to go back to the, I, I suppose, to put the two questions together now, um, within, a, when, within a community that has such a high value on excellence within tourist study, so what it leaves is not so many people can become excellent scholars, that's the reality, which leaves many people disenfranchised within a system that they cannot, so you spoke with your son, but I imagine there are a lot more who not only not you know not capable of study, but don't enjoy the study. And and anyone who spends any time in Israel will see many many you know Haredi kids not in yeshiva, walking the streets, uh, fussing around. And you have the situation that many people who just don't fit the mold, either because academically they don't have the ability or they don't have the desire, but yet the stigma that would be within the community were they to serve in the army, were they to go seek a secular education, um, leaves the sort of group of individuals, and I, and I don't know, you know what the numbers are, other than it's a visible, it's a visible, let's call it a visible minority of individuals who, if they were to serve in the army, and we have unfortunately seen that uh, those within the Haredi community who do serve in the army, often shunned or, what's the term, khaydak, is that the... Yeah, uh, which is a pejorative term used towards Haredi in the army, or or the ability that even though we've we've had individuals from the Haredi community in our community who said, you know, they are studying, you know, they're studying courses, university, but they can't let their neighbours know that they study because if it gets out that they are not dedicating their life totally to Torah, the the, the social cost. So I agree with you that the Haredi community is in no way materialistically, um, there's no material one-upmanship, but there's definitely a one-upmanship and definitely social pressures to conform, albeit it's not on a material level, but it's on a different level, on a, material, on a spiritual level, let's call it. But um, I don't know if there's a question in there, but uh, perhaps a comment on, on, uh, on those phenomena. What do we do with those people within our community who don't conform to our standards? Yeah, that's a great one. Um, so I think that, that, that definitely is something which needs to be reckoned with. I think also, it's a kind of this, this very difficult dance that you have to play because um, there's the, yeah, and, uh, I, I, look, first of all, I think the, the mood is changing. I think traditionally, a person that joined the army probably would not be looked upon, you know, I think there's degree, the, the actual term khadak, I've, I've never actually colloquially heard that, I've only seen it on these posters. And, in Israel, the, the rule is that you never trust a poster. 
Um, but uh, so there's like the way that a lot of the communication happens in Israel are these like big posters plastered on these massive notice boards, and they kind of proclaim certain certain ideals. So there is there are these like horrible um, cartoons drawn of what they call Haredaki, which is a Haredi soldier. Um, generally, those posters are if someone's putting up a poster, it means they've got an issue and they're not representative, it's just a very loud minority. And I also think the attitude is actually interesting, the attitude towards kids going to the army will obviously differ between what community you come from. So if you're a Saitma, you know, if, you, if you're from Ashari, which is a kind of very extreme, as Robert Krebs commented, that Saitma are the one group which are actually openly anti-Zionist. They don't engage in anything with the state, they don't accept money from the state, they don't even go to the Kotel because it was conquered, it wasn't part of the initial UN partition plan. So they're, they're an extreme sect, they're, they're a minority, but I would imagine if one of their followers would go into the army, they would create a lot of um, negative kind of rebound. Um, in the larger community, it's, it's, it is, I mean, it's probably still a lot of that, just in terms of the army reaction, but there's a lot of actual now, um, not only tolerance, but acceptance. There's, there's a lot of Haredi units in the army which are starting to open up. Um, I have two students, one who joined a paratroop unit, Haredi paratroop unit, another one who took going Kirati, an infantry unit. So the Haredi, there's the old unit, which is Netzach Yehuda, which is a counter-terrorist unit. So there's actually a lot of Haredi units in the army, and in fact, um, they're oversubscribed. There's more Haredi that want to go into the army than actually want to, that they can facilitate because of their, let's say, um, Kashrut, etc., which is quite infrastructurally hard to manage. Uh, but definitely, there's so that's the one instance. I think it depends on the community in terms of the backlash. In terms of people not finding themselves in the system, that I think is 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 a problem in the Haredi world. I think I think it's a global problem. I think schools are suffering across the board, and it's a difficult problem to deal with. Uh, within the Haredi world, maybe it's exacerbated because you don't want to, as it were compromise the ultimate value and then open up the doors because um, there's a kind of sense of you want to, and this becomes like arguable if this is the right or wrong approach, but let's say the approach is that if you, I, I'll give you an anecdote which, which perhaps will illustrate it. There's a school called Marava. It was the first of its kind and it was actually a Haredi school devoted towards a balance between Torah and secular studies. And when it was, before it was open, the leader, um, the leader of the yeshiva world at the time was a person called Reb Elaz Menachemam Shach, Rav Shach as he's known as, and the person who opened up the school, a person called Baruch Chait, went to Rav Shach and he said, should I open up the school? And Rav Shach says, no question, it's a necessity, you have to open it up. And he said, no, that I will publicly condemn the school. That's a very difficult thing to understand. If you're going to open up the school, and I'm telling you to open up, why, why, will, why will I condemn it? So the, the answer is that there needs to be perhaps, there's, there's perhaps a, a suspicion or an awareness that uh, the secular world is a, very, is a very tempting world. And for an immature student, full exposure may actually cause him to be destabilized and lose a certain element of what they could potentially gain in their long-term education. So therefore, there's kind of erring, everyone has to err on the side of caution. So, erring on the side of caution by creating a system which actually caters to a 
particular kind of person, which I suppose all schools do, but when you don't fit into the system, what do we do? So there's a reluctance to change the system. And I think there's actually in a historic changeover because that's already starting to, to change. There are more and more schools opening up which are offering secular options. But as, as of today, I think that's still probably the major thrust that if we open up the system, even though ideally we think for individuals for sure it's better, but the minute it becomes a public proclamation, so then they may undermine the whole system. Um, in other words, it's a strategy for better or for worse. So just, uh, I suppose, two points, I don't know if there are questions in there, but um, the concept where, I suppose you presented the, um, the within the Haredi world that um, the Torah study is the top and there's nothing that comes close to it. But I suppose in all areas of, of life is that Talmud Torah, study of Torah, is forfeited for doing mitzvot, for doing acts of kindness and the like, and, and earning a living and the like. So there are definitely times where the study of Torah needs to be um, somewhat minimalized or somewhat um, supplemented with other areas that's actively participating within the world. So if we, if we were to look at the world, and granted this is now a world I suppose that I come from, and so I have a vested interest to something in this, in this question, is the ability to combine, whether it be um, some form of national contribution with the Talmud study. That I, I'd like to think that within the world that I come from as well, Talmud Torah you know, is the epitome and there's nothing that comes close to it. But I suppose for my rabbinim, the idea being that serving in the army is the greatest chesed, the greatest kindness that one can do. In the same way as that we need to go visit the sick, in the same way as we have to go uh, pay, uh, pay a, a, a shiva call, a mourner's call, and we have to do all forms of kindness, the serving in the army would be something similar along those. Not that, so the world I come from isn't one that says you leave the yeshiva world completely to go and serve in the army, but rather understanding that it is part of the religious experience. And similarly, you know, the, I suppose the idea of a second education being, at, at, on the one extent, either a necessary evil in order to be able to create, you know, to be able to provide for yourself and your family, even on a, on a uh, minimalistic level, or alternatively, as an end, to be able to have certain material benefits, but that one doesn't have to pick that it is either or, but that there is some level of combination to be able to to combine within the world, that one doesn't have to look at it as, excuse the part of the black and white, but there are multiple shades of ways of combining values that are core to Judaism with other values that are no less core to Judaism. Right. Um, so I, I think that's that's true. Um, I think they think it's kind of the integrity of, you know, like you said, that you when you have a mitzvah which can't be performed for someone else and you have to get up and do it. Um, so the question is, well, I think there's, there's kind of the, the halachic reality and then there's a the practical reality. Um, does the army lack resources other than soldiers? If the answer to that question would be no, so then if a person's learning, well, why would you stop? If he's not learning, so then definitely he should go. But if he is learning, why should he stop? I think there's, there's another kind of underlying social historical factor which I think is, is it makes it complicated. Um, I think the Israeli army 
as much as it's a protective force for Israel, it's also looked upon as a melting pot, where at a very formative age, um, children are exposed, or the, 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 the soldiers are exposed to a very strong ideal of how to think. And I think there's, there's, there's a large uh, reticence on behalf of the Haredi community in terms of that ideological perspective. That, you know, it's not that I'm sending my kids into an army and, and their commanders are going to be like these paragons of, of, of Jewish values, but they may not be, they may not be. Um, and that's why I think integrating the Haredi into, into the army is, for the army, an extremely complex thing. Because they just they just have different requirements, but they, they can't, you know. In in a way, I once heard a, a joke. It's that um, all the Haredi, everyone says, you know, Haredi don't want to go to the army, and all the secular people say we want the Haredi army. It says in truth, the Haredi want to go to the army. <laughs> secular people say we don't want you there. Um, I mean, for, for, for the Israeli army, imagine if like, the whole thing became from it to be, to be... So I think there's a, there's a kind of, there's, 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 that is the fear. They're going to the army, it's not only that I'll be serving people in a, in, a, in a way, it will actually, it may knock me out. It may knock me out of my spiritual perspective. And I think, you know, in the modern Orthodox world, that, that's a very real fear. And there's a lot of efforts made to make sure that it doesn't happen because it can so easily happen. Um, I recently had Shabbos with a cousin of mine who was in an elite unit called Shaldag, which is like the other guys, they, the dream is a pelican, so they're, they're like, they drop them in and they save people from helicopters. Um, and he said he went from the army back to studying Yeshiva. He said it took him, and he's an extremely, imagine, strong person, but he said um, it was six months before he could even feel that he was dominant. Um, and I think, unfortunately, there's a high incidence of people who go into the army and they, they lose their connection to Torah. Now, is that good or bad, even though or if they lost it, or it wasn't, wasn't there, it's strong enough to begin with or not? I agree with you, but that is definitely a fear, which I think the Haredi world is conscious of. It's not that like they're sending it to a Haredi army, they're sending it to a secular army. You know, so I think that's a fear. And, 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 and I have to echo that, because granted that my, I had a very limited service in the army, but even in my limited service within the army, um, the base, the base is a very difficult place to be a full individual, even with the allowances for, for times to daven and kosher food and the like. Just the environment is a, it's not an easy environment. It's easier to be from in Sydney than it is to be in the army. There's no no question. But that being said, is I wasn't in a religious unit, but but there's those challenges. Um, I'm not going to ask. I had one more question, but I'm actually going to leave my question because I can ask it on another basis. But I will open it up to. The audience, if there are some questions from the audience, um, you'd be able to take the questions. Great. Okay, so any questions from the audience? I know there are questions from the audience, so who's going to be the first one to ask? Can I, I'm just going to come back to the mic. There are people watching online that won't hear you. Um, I just want to ask, um, not really anything you discussed this evening, but in relation to the movie that we watched last week on the Haredi. Um, what was the movie? What was it called? Stiesel. No, no, no. no. <laughs> it was a documentary. It was a documentary. Oh, okay. a documentary on Masharim Primarily. 
Um, and they spoke about the, the influence of the internet and of television, and, and a lot of the Haredi family don't have television, or, or most of them actually don't have television, or, and none of them, very few have internet. Um, the vote is becoming a problem, and they talk about introducing a kosher internet and all the rest. So I just wondered, was interested in your perspective on that. That's actually a great thing we just didn't discuss. So, yeah, TVs are like, just don't, there's no TVs. Um, what about computers? So actually computers are like, it's a massive struggle in the world how they deal with technology. On the one hand, it's kind of something you can't, you can't live with it and you can't live without it. Um, right now, the, 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 the major approach is, um, for sure, kids, uh, no kids will have smartphones. There is actually a stigma to having a smartphone. Uh, if a kid has a smartphone, it will cause stigma. Um, there's kind of a lot of, a lot of pushback against stay away from technology, technology is dangerous, don't even touch it. Um, anecdotally, I even had a time, because I have this uh, monstrosity in my pocket, so I've had a time where someone's asked me, can you borrow a phone, and I've said to him, you won't touch it. You won't even touch it. He says, no, that's impure, I'm not going to go near it. So I hit him. <laughs> um, which is interesting, so, so amongst the kids, they all have dumb phones. Their phones have dumb phones, which means it's like your normal Nokia brick. Um, and um, which, which in a way, you know, just from my anecdotal experience, for me I find that amazing. Because my, my kids don't know what a screen is. Um, as they get older, and my daughters when they're studying, so then they, they have to use computers and they can do computers, but generally in their, in their adolescent years, they, they're pretty much tech free. And I think that's an amazing thing, because my little seven-year-old, she spends the time playing with her friends, playing imaginary games, and they go skipping. So I think it's wonderful. Um, I think it's a much more wholesome way of growing up. Growing up. Um, now, in terms of technology, so, so here, here you've got my phone, it looks like your standard Samsung Galaxy. Actually, if I switch it on, there's a Hechsher on it. Um, it's, it's, it's a kosher phone. Now, it's, it's obviously, it's, it's pushing the lines of kosher's um, with its science and that, but my phone, I only use it for WhatsApp and Gmail. So it's a block browser. Um, which, which is kind of borderline acceptable in the Haredi world. Um, I don't feel embarrassed taking it out, but other people may well be. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of kind of fear. There's a lot of fear about technology, and the reason why there's so much fear is because I think there's, there's, two, there's two parts of the fear. The fear is that the internet is for, for, for sure, for a child, but even for an adult, is a dangerous place to be um, because of the, the exposure to easy access to pornography, and in terms of the impression that they can make on a young soul, it's, it's quite horrific. So that's the one thing. Um, the other thing is, perhaps um, children who have not been educated in a broad education, and then all of a sudden they, they're exposed to everything, they can be immensely destabilizing. So they have to be kind of be coached into that. So as a result, there's, there's very little, um, you know, there's, there's, for example, we subscribe to a, um, there is in Israel, kosher internet providers, whereby the, the fault is not even, it's not on the, on the PC there, it's actually the, the, the server will only let you access to a certain amount of things and certain sites completely blocked. Um, we have a code, we have a computer at home, but we have a code in our computer, the kids aren't allowed free access to the computer, and um, ironically, I have two married daughters, um, and neither of them will have a computer now. So when they want to like use a trade thing, they come to the parents. <laughs> so yeah, that's an interesting thing.
But did you say you want schnitzel, so, or you have... Oh, so actually, uh, the reason I want schnitzel is because um, everyone's been talking about it, and I thought, I'm going to seem like a real idiot if like everyone's saying, but in schnitzel, so, so last night, like between 11 and 12, myself, my mother, and my father sat there and watched schnitzel, and I had like such mixed reactions, because on one hand, I felt this is fit on the roof all over again, because there was like a lot of kind of, which I felt, a parody, uh, but there was a lot of stuff which they got right, so I've got, I've got mixed, mixed reactions to watch schnitzel. <laughs> Don't be scared. Don't be scared. Um, I, I've sort of had problems with what I see as um, Karevi not following what seems fairly clear to me in, in the Torah. For example, uh, the Israelites had to do the fighting. They had to be in the army, but the tribes who wanted to go off and uh, hang around with their sheep were only allowed to do so if they continued fighting until the land had been conquered. Um, so the Jewish tradition from right back in the Torah is that people do have to do their bit for the collective um, defense of the nation. And yet, uh, the Haredi sit and study all this, but they don't appear to be following it in not being willing to fight for the nation, accepting that Israel is now the only Jewish nation that does exist, that whether or not God has uh, created it in a miraculous way, Israel is now there, and it is the only Jewish nation, and to preserve the Jewish nation, all Jews should be contributing and the contribution of Jews living in Israel should be to fight in the army. So I think that's interesting because, you know, if you, I think you're right. If you read the simple, even if you read the simple text, um, when you're sure, when Moshe says you should go to the army, it's actually only a selected part of the Jewish people that actually go out and fight. And the Medrash comments that there were actually three camps of, of people who are conscripted to the army. The first camp were the fighters, the next camp were the learners, and the third camp were the daveners. So even historically in the Jewish people, it wasn't, it wasn't everyone that offered the opportunity to go army, it was actually the select few. Um, how they actually, you know, figured out who should go and who should go uh, is, is I'm not quite sure, but there definitely was no state, state where every able man, woman and child, just as an example, the Torah explicitly um, exempts a man who's in the first year of marriage from not only going into the army but in doing any community service. A man who just built a house, planted a vineyard. So, and a man who's scared. So there's enormous ways of, of kind of getting exemption from the army, even in the Torah and even historically. So I, I just don't think that that's kind of, that's not, it was never and um, a real part of the Jewish people that every single person should go to the army. Uh, another one is Ein Kamach Ein Torah. Um, again, same thing applies. You don't get the Kamach without doing something for it. Um, right. So yeah. that means that rather than expecting the sustenance to come from the, the other taxpayers in Israel, right. the people should be working to support themselves. 
Okay, so, so Greg quoted that. It's quite interesting. There's also so it actually goes both ways. So, you know, I definitely think that there should be more hurried working and there should be more secular people in yeshivas. There's actually, there's actually a, a, an organization, it's called Kemach, which um, encourages Haredi entrance into the workplace. Um, there's, there's, the Rambam actually rules. There's two, two interesting Rambams which often raises a contradiction. There's a Rambam in the, in the, in the laws of the study of Torah where he says, a person is, it's illegal, it's unethically invalid for a person to accept money for the study of Torah. And then there's a Rambam at the end of the laws of Shemitah and Yovel, where he says, historically, there were 12 tribes. Of those 12 tribes, there was a tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi never worked, never went into the army. They sit and studied all day. And it was the obligation of the rest of the Jewish people to support them through their tithing and etc. And the Rambam says that principle of the tribe of Levi being selected as the few that would sit, sit, sit aside and learn, so that, that is not only true of the, the tribe of Levi, but any human being that of his own volition decides that he would like to go and devote his life to the study of Torah, the service of God, in order to gain that wisdom and insight, it is his right and privilege to do so, and he will be supplied with his sustenance by Hashem himself. So even according to the Allah ruling, if you do get this purely motivated individual, he's fully entitled to, to study, and actually historically was, was always so. comments on those people who are, you remember you talked a little bit earlier about those who are feeling disenfranchised or uh, feel they're not part of, of the Haredi community. Should those, those people who choose to leave, could you just comment on that, on how the Haredi community... Yeah, so, so I can't guarantee how each individual family deals with that, because as you can imagine, it's like pretty traumatic. Um, I deal with the other way around. I deal with people who their parents are secular and they become from and their parents say, you know, there's a story about two old men and they're sitting on the bench and A.B. says to Jaime, um, A.B., so Jaime, why do why, why you look so sad? He says, it's happened again. He says, what? He says, another one of my sons has become from. He says, you got to check your missus. Um, <laughs> so, um, so what do you do with it? So you can imagine that, you know, I was once having an, uh, a meeting with parents of a student of mine and um, the father wasn't Jewish, the mother was Jewish, and I was kind of comfort comforting them. They were very, very, very opposed to their son's entrance into religion, and they said, um, you know, like, I said to him, you know, he's living a life, it's moral, um, he may not be doing what you anticipate he'd do, but he's really kind of entering into a very wholesome and productive life. And his mother looked me in the eye and she said, would you feel the same way if your child became a Buddhist? And that was a really horrible question. To, I mean, it was a very point, but it was a horrible thing to think about. So you can imagine if you, um, so you can relate to the fact that you've got certain values that you want your children to embody. What happens when they absolutely reject them? I think that's a question that every parent has to deal with. And there's different ways of approach, but just to put across that that's an emotionally very difficult thing to deal with. So often how people respond, it's not the way they should respond. What way should they respond? So in, in, in B'nai Brak, there's a shiva called Ponovet, which is it's probably like one of the most elite of elite shivas in Israel. And the Rosh Shiva is a person called like Gershon Edelstein. Um, I saw an interview, you can actually check it up on, on YouTube, where um, a person asked him, what should you do if your son, who's religious, comes home, any secular, with his girlfriend? 
how should you respond? So he said, you have to be embracing, be kind to them. Don't, the person, should you push them away? He said, chas v'shalom, God forbid. He said, but, but they're doing something which is a serious sin. They're living together before they're married. He said, chas v'shalom, embrace them with love. They asked him a further question, what happens if you're walking in your religious neighborhood with your son and he's, he's not following your ways? And whilst walking down the street, he lights up a cigarette on Shabbos. What should you do? Should you say to him, please don't smoke? This is a public, I don't embarrass me. He says, chas v'shalom. Don't do that. He says, if you do that, it's like creating a stumbling block in front of a blind person. I mean, you're tripping him up. You're putting him into a situation. So the, the correct way would be for a person disenfranchised to embrace them and allow people to choose the to choose the way they want to live their life. Practically speaking, that's an emotionally very difficult thing to deal with. It's confronting for the family and it's definitely confronting for the whenever a child breaks with the social norm, it's a very difficult thing for the society, for the family, for the child. So this is this is I suppose intensified in the Haredi world. Um, anecdotally, um, you know, I've got friends whose, whose children are, are not, either they're not religious or they're a different kind of religious. And the reality is that children have freedom of choice like we all do. And everyone will choose their own way. And we as parents have an obligation to give them unconditional love. And we as a society have an obligation to give them unconditional love. Do we live up to ourselves? Unfortunately, sometimes not. And that's very sad for everyone. Thank you, Masilo, and thank you everyone for joining us this evening. I think it was uh, very insightful and very enlightening. I'm sure you'll stick around for a few minutes afterwards if anyone has some personal questions to ask you. Um, I, th I think one of the, the nice things, of, so Rabbi Siegel does, so um, a lot of my good friends went through Rabbi Siegel's yeshiva. I myself sort of never made it there myself. Um, but one of the things that is beautiful within the, the religious world, and I, I'd like to think, is that you can have people of different stripes that see each other as part of very much the same journey. That I don't wear black hats and, you know, I don't wear it necessarily at all in But Rabbi Siegel and myself would very much see ourselves as part of the same community. That within Orthodox Judaism, that God is one, that God gave us the Torah, and God has expectations if we live a moral life according to Torah and Mitzvot. It's something that we share. And it's something that often people would look at, at us and say, oh, well, Rabbi, you know, Rabbi Siegel is much more orthodox than me, or I'm much more modern or much more less orthodox. And I think from both of our point of view, our ideal is that we both are committed Jews. We have different ways of approaching Judaism. We have different you know, ways of looking at the same thing. But the idea and the ideal that Torah, Mitzvot, and Hashem, and Hashem's Mitzvot, all the crux and core of our value system, I'd like to think that we share that in its entirety. So it's been an absolute privilege to host you once again in a slightly different forum. Um, thank you very much. Please God, our next uh, talk will be happening um, in April, and that will be with a, a speaker named Munza Emad, and that is going to be a story from Gaza about a young man who grew up in Gaza, lives in Sydney, but his entire family is still in Gaza. 
and has been very instrumental in working in trying to bring the Israelis and Palestinians together, both over here as well as over there. So that will be happening in April. It's gone from one extreme to a completely different extreme. But thank you so much for joining us and have a good night.